Well, good morning, Sun Valley Church, and welcome back to The Voice of the Valley. I'm Jeremy Pinch, and again, I have Pastor Rick and Pastor John in the room with me. If you remember last week, we uh, we worked through the Trinity uh, with the goal and intention of trying to discuss God the Father, but we didn't get there. And so today we are going to be looking at the Father. Now, last week I read through our statement of faith of what we say uh, regarding the first person of the Trinity. Uh, and so you can go back to last week and listen to it, or you can just go on our website and read through our statement of faith. Uh, so uh, to get us started today, uh, I'm just going to ask you guys to uh, further explain uh, the role of God the Father. All right. Uh, so, Jeremy, as we talk through this um, statement of faith, uh, you can't get very far in fact, I think you get you get less than uh, <laughs> um, one sentence, and you start coming across all sorts of um, references, right? Yeah, biblical references. And the reason that that's like that is because we um, we uh, are very dependent on uh, as a church and as we form our doctrine and theology on the scriptures, and so. To answer any of these questions, we want to have our Bibles open. We want to be able to think biblically about these different areas, important areas of, of doctrine that are listed in our doctrinal statement online. And the first, of course, is this one that you've identified, the role of the Father, mm-hmm. uh, and the Father being God the Father, um, the first person of the Godhead and the Trinity that we spoke a little bit about last week. But I want to. I'd like to have you think about the role of the Father in relation to Ephesians chapter one. So in Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse three, Paul says, "Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He, that is God the Father, chose us in Him, that is God the Son." before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And then again in verse 5, he, that is God the Father, predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ um, to the praise of his glorious grace, the Father's glorious grace. And so we have uh, just in this short passage in Ephesians chapter 1, a wonderful description of God the Father's um, role or job description, if you will. Um, But it's very clear that God the Father has a significant role in our salvation Hmm. and in all of human history, of course. First being, uh, he blessed us in Christ, blessed us, those who are in Christ, uh, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That, That alone we could talk for a long time, what are all the heavenly blessings or all all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places? And then in verse four, he chose us in him. The the heavenly father was the one behind the choosing, the electing of the saints. And then in verse five, predestining us for adoption. So the role of the father is um, primary and substantial when it comes to the roles within the Trinity and what they play and and how they play out, especially in our salvation. One of the important 
aspects of this particular passage, I think, communicates the, the eternal character of God in a loving way hmm. um, that is sometimes, unfortunately, misunderstood uh, from an Old Testament perspective. I mentioned this on Sunday in my sermon, how a lot of times people think and accuse God of being distant, remote, angry, you know, right. inaccessible, right. Uh, impersonal, as we as we understand him in the Old Testament. But this this goes back beyond the Old Testament, before yeah. the Old Testament, and establishes the role of the Father as a loving Father, one who cares deeply about us, His children, um, here before time began. So that's how I like to kind of get the ball rolling this morning by thinking that about our Heavenly Father, about the role of God, the Father. Okay. So God is, God the Father is loving, and yet he's also wrathful. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, I think that's the juxtaposition that people struggle with, is, is how can God pour out his wrath, as he does all throughout the Old Testament, um, and still yet be, be loving? And I, that, I think people really struggle with that. Um, you know, I had a really good conversation. I told you about this conversation that we had with the students, which was like the best conversation that I've had with our with our, the student boys in, in student ministries, where we were we were working through this idea of how can God be be just and loving by condemning sinners to hell, um, and uh, it was just one of those conversations that pointed back to God's love being being poured out on us through His justice being poured out on on Christ, which was, which was awesome. And it was a great conversation, uh, which it opened up my eyes even further to, to God's love and his role, um, through all eternity. So as we look at this, this next point here, it says that he's the creator of all things. God, the father is the creator of all things. Um, how does that, how does that play out since, since there's passages that speak of Christ, the second person of the Trinity, being the creator of all things, thinking of, you know, like John 1 or, uh, you know, Colossians 1 here. Um, aren't there, aren't there, isn't that kind of confusing there? Um, so we're talking about, when we're talking about the Father, we're talking about, we're, we're in the middle of a Trinitarian conversation, right? So we can't actually take today's subject and look at the Father without remembering who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's an eternal reality. You know, God doesn't just become Father when um, when, when the Son of God, or when, when the second person of the Trinity becomes Christ, you know, on earth uh, and takes a human nature. When we're talking about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we're talking about eternal relationship within the Godhead. It's always existed. It's inherent to who God is, that he is related within himself, the three persons, the one God as Father, Son, Mm -hmm. and Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, you know, when he comes, he says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And he says, I and the Father are one. And so Yes, we, we do see creation happening through Christ in places like Colossians 1, where he's before all things, in him all things hold together, all things are created through him and for him. Um, that's, um, I think, what you can call agency. He is the agent through whom 
creation happens. And so we get to Genesis 1, and you see God saying, uh, let there be light, you know, and there was light. Um, let us make man in our image. And so there's a, there's a relational multi-person, one God reality to creation. And it is the Father who's creating, and it's through the Son and, and this is really how theologians through church history have understood it. You know, mm-hmm. the Father is creating through the Son in whom all things hold together and have come to be, and by the Holy Spirit. And those, um, those words are actually pretty significant because they, they communicate a distinction in the roles of each of the triune persons um, in what's happening while maintaining that, that God, because he is one and cannot be divided— is united in all that he does. And actually, if you want to zoom in on what did that look like in creation, one of my favorite um, chapters of the Bible is Proverbs 8. And I, and I take the view that when we are, are looking at wisdom personified, um, and, and, and I was just reading this yesterday because it was the eighth of the month yesterday. And so Proverbs 8, um, when he says that when he established, this is wisdom talking, when he established the heavens and he is God, and we would say, this is God the Father. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made the skies firm above and established the fountains of the deep, I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in the inhabited world. Hmm. So it's not at all a contradiction to say that um, Christ is creator. The Father is creator. They're one. Mm-hmm. In their and own even the Spirit. World. And the spirit the, 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 mm-hmm. the, in the scriptures, the spirit's referred to as involved in creation. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so all three really are. And, and I don't, I don't think you can uh, uh, remove one from the other in that, you know, fundamental <laughs> process of creation. Yeah, they're all involved there, just like they're all involved in our salvation. Mm-hmm. They are three in one, participating in all ways in all things. Mm-hmm. They, they certainly have distinct roles and i think that's the point of what we're talking about here but it's not like um the father's role in creation was separate from the sons or the spirits mm-hmm. they they work together and in unison with each other in all aspects of existence mm. including the creation of man our souls and bringing us to salvation sanctifying us in salvation, glorifying us in the future. Uh, so these are all really distinct but unified roles that they have. Mm-hmm. So in our statement of faith, uh, it, it reads that he's the only absolute omnipotent ruler in the universe. He's sovereign in his creation, providence, and redemption. His fatherhood involves both his designation within the Trinity and his relationship with mankind. His fatherhood involves both his designation within the Trinity and his relationship with mankind. So what does that, what does this mean? I'll have to get a dictionary. What are, what are all those big words? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, when Jesus called God the Father, that was, that was a relatively new concept to the people in his day. Right. Right. Um, but again... There is there is that idea that I read from Ephesians one that that said he predestined us for adoption, you know that idea of fatherhood there uh, that I think is clear. 
when it comes to bringing people to himself uh, in bringing them into the family, which has fatherhood type of concepts within it. When you talk about a family, mm-hmm. a family has a father, mm-hmm. and it's no different in our spiritual family. We have a father, and his name is God the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, that concept of fatherhood wasn't so prevalent in the Old Testament, um, and yet it's he's referred to there occasionally in the Old Testament that way, but in the New Testament, it's everywhere. It's, it's on every page almost. Right. And it's because of that adoption concept that brings humanity into a family that was unique not that not that israel wasn't in the family um they were but it was it's a different kind of relationship that we have with christ than they had with with the father yeah um so yeah there's 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 that aspect of relationship with that term father Mm -hmm. um that is i think important where there's two different terms they're they're theological terms and sometimes you kind of get the idea that theologians use certain words in order to convey that they understand a lot about what we don't know um and two words is really is and you're too afraid to to ask you can't nobody asks (laughs) i don't want to sound stupid but (laughs) exactly what does that word mean (laughs) yeah how did we define it in that book we wrote oh yeah that's right um but one the word that kind of gets to your your question of what does it mean designation within the trinity um is we have the trinity ontologically which is that word ontological gets at the essence or the the being Mm. of god and then we have what's called the economic trinity and it doesn't have to do with the fed um it has to (laughs) it has to do with um how god relates within creation and redemption um to his people and so if you if you want to just make it simple the ontological trinity has to do with god's eternal nature as god and the economic trinity has to do with how the father son and the holy spirit relate in creation redemption restoration to you know to everything that's not god mm-hmm. and the the thing that we need to understand is that whether we're talking about god as he is eternally or god as he is in relation to creation no matter what god is father son and holy spirit and so when we're talking about his designation as God the Father within the Trinity, we're talking about a reality that has always been and always will be. There never was a time when he started to be Father. And that does not mean, you know, this is where the heresies come in, that at some point Jesus or the, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, ever began to exist. You know, he always was. And so he was the eternal son. He, he's he the is eternal the eternal son. son. Exactly. Yeah. And so when we say he's the only begotten of the Father, the Nicene Creed, you know, we talked about positive and negative theology. It it is it negatively it denies that he was ever made. Mm-hmm. With every human relationship between father and son, the a father becomes a father when a son is, it you know comes into being who wasn't there before. Well, God in the son are eternally father and son. And so we're talking about an eternal relationship here when we're talking about his designation as God, the father. Mm -hmm. And part of the, I think part of the confusion is the word son, Mm -hmm. because we know and believe that Jesus became human. That doesn't mean he, he came into existence, but he he did add humanity to his existence um, with the, 
you know, incarnation, yeah. the birth of a son. And so we have that, that's, that I think adds to the challenging uh, circumstances surrounding the, the word son, yeah. which is why some people, you know, come to the conclusion that he, he became after his incarnation or at his incarnation, which is, you know, a, a misunderstanding of the Trinity. Yeah. Um, but it, it, that, I think that's where that comes from. And it's, it's not an uncommon error yeah. that people think of it that way. In fact, some people would say he is he has the son. We're not talking about the son primarily here, but the son has always always existed, but not as son as the second person of the Godhead, and that is something I think you're addressing, Rick. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting in Proverbs 30. Um, I really like this guy Agur. Um, I'd never name a son Agur, but he he's one of my favorite authors in Proverbs. He's he uh, he he just has the 30th chapter, and he's sitting here, and, he, and this is way before. Christ comes, you know, in the incarnation, and he he's looking at God, and he says, "Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who's wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth?" Right. So he's talking about creation. He says, "What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know." And you know, in Psalm two, um, the father says, "You are my son. Today I have begotten you," mm-hmm. and that's. There are different ways that that is used in the New Testament, but it's it's we get the distinct understanding that that is an eternal reality. Mm-hmm. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and that's about as far as we get to see behind the curtain. And, and it's not and it's not unimportant that those are Old Testament references, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. In, in terms of this conversation mm-hmm. about Father Son sure. relationship, yeah, sure. sure, yeah. So, John, as you just you read through Ephesians one. Um, I think three times in that passage, one through one through uh, fourteen, um, the there's a phrase that's repeated. It says, "For His glory, for His glory, for His glory." Sure. Um, so that's a that's a repeated phrase. And in our statement of faith, we we say that He's decreed for His own glory all things that come to pass. Mm-hmm. Now, people people who hear that say that well god's incredibly egotistical for thinking that way if if he's if he's doing things for his own glory then he's just an egotistical arrogant god but why is it important for god to be doing everything for his own glory well i think you could john piper answers this question uh, in his book desiring god mm-hmm. this is one of the primary things he discusses um or maybe well is it desiring god or uh what was his later book on that issue? I can't remember, but uh, I'll think of it here in a minute. But so Piper discusses this, and the the important thing here to to ask a question to ask to clarify that question is, for whose else glory would he have done it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So someone's getting the glory. <laughs> someone's getting the glory. Glory be. And if it's somebody other than the Father, we've got problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the Godhead, I should say, because there's glory to the Son also. In fact, yeah. the Father makes a point of bringing glory to the Son mm-hmm. in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, the Spirit never receives glory in Scripture in that way, but the Father and the Son do. Yeah. So it's it's important that that we understand if there are other options on who receives glory, 
in that regard, we've got major problems. We've yeah. got an idolater on our hands, mm-hmm. and he's our God. <laughs> and, so, yeah. and so Piper asks these kind of questions when he's discussing that particular accusation yeah. of egotism on the part of God. Why does he always need glory? Why does he always you know, want to have, why is he jealous? What, man, relax, God. Yeah. Could, have, could be and has been the response of many. In this conversation, but if you simply think about it, if God were to give glory to someone else, that person is greater than God, or that being is greater than God. Mm-hmm. So immediately, the Father or the Son or the Spirit who gives that glory would be an idolater, which yeah. would eliminate them from de- deity. Yeah. So we can't have a God who says, "You know, I did this for your glory." You know, all over Scripture, it, it talks about different things that bring God glory, including our salvation. Yeah. We think, you know, selfishly and, in, in, you know, as we're navel gazers normally, we think, okay, it, my salvation's about me. No, it's not. It's about the glory for the, to the Father and the Son. Mm-hmm. That's where the glory's going, and rightly so. And it's not about ego. Uh, it's really about the person of God. Who is he? Yeah. Who else should receive the glory? Right. Those are great questions to help clarify the yeah. issue, in my yeah. mind. Yeah. You know, and in, in another one of my favorite passages is, John, you know, John 17, right? Jesus prays right before he is going to go to the cross. And he, he, he gets at this eternal glory of the Godhead when he, he looks at what he's going to accomplish and he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, you know, and we look at the Father who is the the, the ordainer of our salvation yeah. and the Son who comes um, by the Father's will to accomplish our salvation and then the Spirit who applies our salvation because of Christ's finished work. So, Father, those whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So this is the ultimate reality of all existence is that there's an eternally glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for whom all things exist. And if, if it were any other way, you know, like John's saying, um, it would be a gross distortion of what is truly good. Mm-hmm. And we, we have a good God, not an evil God. Um, but if he were to do anything other than act for the, his own glory, it, that would not be the case. You know, it doesn't do anybody any favors. Like, you think of it on a human level, which is, you know, normally how we think of these things. It's so off-putting when you're nervous about, you know, medical procedure. Maybe you're like, a, I don't know, a brain surgery. And you go up to Seattle and you're just really talking with your surgeon about it. And he goes, listen, it's okay. I'm, I'm the best brain surgeon in the world. And if if he does, in fact, have the credentials and it's this is a his, all his peers globally acknowledge, this guy's the best. He's not... It's not. It's false humility for him to tell you something otherwise. It's not necessarily a prideful statement just to simply state the facts. But we know surgeons. We, we know so. surgeons. They're all the best in the world. And they work in Yakima. Why are you employed in Yakima? I love the foothills. It's because I have one hour's drive and I'm on the slopes. But with God, you know, there's no temptation to pride the way that it is for us as people. And so we just, we have to realize this is the fundamental nature of how things are in existence. We we wouldn't want a God that's giving praise to anybody else or anything else. Well, that would be the issue with polytheism, 
is we wouldn't know who would be getting the glory. Right. Who's in charge? <laughs> well, and and as soon as you as soon as you acknowledge the legitimacy of some deity giving glory to another, uh, you've eliminated that deity from yeah, the top. Exactly. Of the pile. Exactly. And so, uh, our, in order for our salvation to work, in order for our existence to work, God has to be the most glorious and deserving of all praise mm-hmm. and glory. Mm-hmm. Any other. Any other concept of God undermines our salvation, undermines our existence. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, we're, we're kind of getting into like apologetics here of working through things. And so another approach that people would use is, well, if, if God is in control of all things, if he's the ruler of the universe, if he's sovereign, he spoke everything into existence, then certainly that would mean that he has to be the author of evil. He created Satan. Satan caused sin to happen in the world. Therefore, God is the author of evil. And so our statement of faith would say otherwise. We would say uh, his sovereignty, He, in his sovereignty, he is neither the author nor the approver of sin. So... How do we how do we answer based on this? How do we answer to those critics who would say, uh, "Well, God is God is the author of of evil." Shut up! <laughs> <laughs> you're just you're just stupid. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. Did you want more? Um, <laughs> no, if that was your answer, that sounds like a good apologetic to me. <laughs> you're dumb. You're a duty head. <laughs> So inherently, God is holy. This is, this is, we 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 have no understanding of God except that He's holy. And so you, you look at at the creatures around His throne, and what are they what are they crying? Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah six, Revelation four. Um, we have a holy God whom. So Habakkuk actually is a prophet who wrestles with this because he is in the middle of a generation of Israelites who are pretty wicked. He's he's prophesying in Judah um, in the 10 years preceding the coming of the Babylonians. And he's he's upset because the Jews are corrupt. And he's looking around, he's going, Lord, your people are acting wickedly. Where are you? What are you doing? How, how are you going to deal with this? Um and, and God's answer is, it's okay. I know my people are wicked, so I'm sending the Babylonians in, and I'm going to punish them. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, hold, hold the phone. They're worse. How are you? What kind of answer is, I'm going to send more evil people as judgment upon evil people. Um, and he, he says in his first, um, in the first chapter, he says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my holy one? He says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So Habakkuk knows because of who God is in his nature, he cannot abide with evil. Mm. And yet we see that he ordains, like John read in in Ephesians, all things that come to pass. Mm -hmm. So there's this tension, right? But we know that because of the truthfulness of Scripture, like we talked about two weeks ago, that it cannot contradict itself. Um, that there is a way in which God ordains evil, and yet he n- is not corrupt in any way, and so therefore he is not the author of it. Right. I, I, think, I think within that uh, context of Habakkuk that, that Rick just read, uh, we see the, the, the next chapter, 
So God uses a more evil nation to punish his sinful people that he loves, that he has his, uh, the apple of his eye on. Uh, he uses a, a horrible, evil nation to punish someone that's less evil. He did the same with the Assyrians. And yet, and yet in God's justice, he didn't not come back and punish Babylon and Assyria for their role in punishing God's people. Mm -hmm. So God ordained, God uses Assyria and Babylon to discipline, really. Punishment isn't the best word, but discipline is a better word. Mm -hmm. Um, He disciplines his own people with a more evil nation, but then he punishes Babylon and Assyria because of their mistreatment, which is hard for us to get our minds around logically. So God ordains <laughs> Babylon <laughs> to discipline uh, Israel, but then he punishes Babylon for disciplining Israel. Hmm. And and so what, what we're getting into is some really um, challenging uh, uh, concepts. And we need, to, we need to understand that God operates in a realm that is outside of our ability to manage yeah. a lot. My ways are above your ways. So simple-minded people, you know, trust me on this one. And, and that, that, that settles some of us, but not all of us. All of us are saying, well, well I want what's the third chapter. How, how, how is that reasonable? Yeah. And you get to, to Amos in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, is, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? All of a sudden, you start getting the idea that that God is behind this. But I think the the way to consider God's involvement in ordaining evil is to realize he doesn't have to try hard to get evil people to act evil hmm. at all. Hmm. He, he lets them go the course of their evil desires. He didn't have to prompt Babylon to invade Israel. They invaded Israel because they wanted Israel's stuff, mm-hmm. right? Remember, Hezekiah showed the Babylonians his gold, <laughs> and the prophet comes along and says, that was really stupid. Yeah. So God uses, God uses Hezekiah's pride yeah. to uh, prompt Babylon to invade, mm-hmm. to accomplish his purpose, to discipline Israel. And so he never, he never uh, uh, offends the will of man in that regard. Mm. He allows sinful human beings to do what they want to do. And in that, and, and this is the intricate part, he accomplishes his eternal purposes. He uses our sinful desires to bring about each other's sanctification. Mm. When I come up to you and mistreat you, Jeremy, and, and regularly, regularly, like I do, right? Uh, and how Rick mistreats God wills it. Yes, <laughs> that's that's our defense. <laughs> I, I just when, whenever defense. Jeremy complains, I say, "Does uh, disaster come into the pinch household unless the Lord has done it?" Yes. And so that's how we respond to these things. And I I tried that with my wife, and she never buys it. But um, but all, apparently I do. We we call so. him. <laughs> Yeah, John Nezer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, I'll turn my wrath towards Rick here in the near future. But no, so so uh, God ordains 
but is not responsible. Mm-hmm. Babylon is responsible for their sinful treatment of Israel. Mm-hmm. I'm responsible for my sinful treatment of the people in my life. Mm-hmm. Does God use it? Absolutely. In his providence, he allows people to mistreat one another to sanctify his people. How is it we get sanctified mostly? It's by it's by this kind of thing. When, when I'm spoken against uh, unfairly, mm-hmm. how am I going to respond? Mm-hmm. When, when I mistreat you or you mistreat me, I, I'm, I'm being, God is using those negative circumstances to push my heart Godward, right. to, to depend on him, to learn from my circumstances. What, what I have discovered in my uh, years of Christian life is that whenever things happen to me that are brought on by insensitive, uncaring, unloving people, it is never just that thing. Yeah. God is attempting to accomplish something through that person unwittingly, and they're totally responsible for their mistreatment of me, but he's using them to accomplish his purposes in my life. Just like he used sinful Babylon of their own will to discipline Israel. Yeah. It is It is way beyond us in terms of understanding how God pulls that off. Uh, I don't think anybody has ever explained that real well. But it's exactly what happens. Yeah. And it's proven all over the pages of Scripture. It's proven in our own lives. Yeah. yeah and theologically, we're kind of swimming in waters similar to the waters <laughs> we're swimming in with the Trinity because we're talking mm-hmm. about multiple truths that are um, undeniably held together in a tension that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. But we have to realize immediately that tension is not contradiction. And, you know, and I've used this in teaching a number of times or in counseling just because it's such a handy answer, you know, because we're talking about the free will of man or, and, you know, and the choice in the will of God. And uh, people just naturally want to sit here and go, well, if God ordains all things, then therefore he's violating the choices of, of people. Mm-hmm. And so someone came up to Charles Spurgeon one day and said, hey, how do you reconcile the the sovereign control of God and the free will of man. And Spurgeon says, I don't try to reconcile friends. You know, we have these case studies throughout scripture. Like one of the ones that stands out to me most is um, David, Second Samuel 24 and in First Chronicles 21. He gets it in his mind, I'm going to go number the people of Israel. And he takes a census that God had forbidden him to take. Mm-hmm. And depending on which you're reading, First Chronicles 21 or Second Samuel 24, it says, God stirred up David's heart to go and number Israel. Hmm. Same account in Second Chron- or in First Chronicles 21, it says, Satan incited David to number Israel. Hmm. So we have three parties involved in this one incident. God who stirred up David's heart, David whose heart decided to do this and is held responsible for it, and then Satan who is involved somehow. Put that together in a blender. Yeah, so did God offend David's will? <laughs> exactly. Right. And no. <laughs> no, because he did David, not. David's guilt is firmly established That's in the like text. That's like Pharaoh. And he acknowledged yeah. it. Did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden his heart? Yeah. yeah it says so, both in the same chapter. Exactly. Yes. And, and this is what is, <laughs> it, Paul, and, yes is and Paul looks at that in Romans 9 when he's getting into God's sovereign choices. And he, he anticipates the objection from people who want to get off the hook. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, if this is true, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other and words, that's talking about salvation going... exactly. in that passage, which yeah. is the, the final conversation in this issue. Mm-hmm. Right. And well, what, what is Paul's answer? He says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? He says basically this, zip it. Exactly. <laughs> he says, don't talk. 
And so whenever, <laughs> whenever I'm talking to somebody who wants to really bring that t- to the mat and say, well, if that's true, that God ordains everything, um, so are you telling me I couldn't have chosen to do other than I did? And, and I immediately always turn it back and I say, friend, you wouldn't have chosen to do anything different. Mm-hmm. Not one step along the way did you do anything by force. You, you actually wanted to do that sin. Including rejecting Christ, if yep. that's the issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so who is it who are the only people who could even possibly complain of their will being violated? It's the redeemed. We did not want God when he right. went and drew us. Yeah. And so basically... Yeah, who are you? Well, who and, are we, O oh, men, to yeah, answer back and, to God? <laughs> and Jesus' prayer in the garden is interesting too. Element in that conversation. We may get into that next week when we talk about the Son. But mm-hmm. Jesus says, "Not my will, because my will is, Father. Is there any way to get by this cup?" Yeah. And he goes, "But your will." Yeah. And so it's like, wow, yeah. what's going on there? <laughs> Ooh, someone just got into the hypostatic. <laughs> Come back next week. Yeah. It's important that we remember what James says, right, in chapter one. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. Right. And yet he he uses it, and this is really, I guess, where we could leave it is he uses means, is what the Westminster Confession says. Yeah. He uses means to accomplish his will. And so our free choices may not be the primary thing, the fountainhead of this whole how <laughs> history unfolds, but God is definitely using those yeah. things. Yeah. So I want to I want to finish with an application point. Um, so when we when we start getting into these details, I think it's easy for us just to kind of throw up our hands and say, "Well, I'm never going to understand, so I'm not going to I'm not going to try to mine those depths." Um, what would be your guys's encouragement for the people of Sun Valley to 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 dig deeper, to think on these things, and to to apply them to their life? My encouragement would be, Jeremy, don't throw up your hands in frustration and say, "I'm not going to mine those depths." Yeah. <laughs> That's, that would be mine. How about I'm gonna, you? Rick? I'm going to echo that. No. <laughs> we're talking about the character. Okay, so we're go- we, we already do mind those depths. I have never met a single thinking Christian who doesn't mind those depths. We do it inherently because we have to make sense of our lives. So the question is, are you going to mind the depths with intention and an open Bible and some good guides along the way? Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, Packer's Concise Theology or Sproul's Everyone's a Theologian, things that you can literally, t- you know, take a chapter a day and get through it in two months at five minutes a day mm-hmm. and deal with those things? Or are you going to do it unintentionally and end up with some really bad ideas about God? But not making sense of it isn't something that anybody who's listening to this actually does. Right, and on, on top of that, uh, we are in, in this church, at Sun Valley Church, where we mine those depths regularly on Sunday mornings, mm-hmm. in Sunday seminars when we have them, in small groups. We actually discuss these things. We actually wrestle with them, and we ask people to wrestle with them. But I like Rick's you know, example or um, direction. That we ha- we're all, aren't we always giving resources to our people, asking them to read certain things. Mm-hmm. I, I know that we mention them from the pulpit. We mention them in our Sunday school. We mention them online. We have a list of, you know, elder read books, I think, still on our, our I don't know. We still have that on our website. I don't know. I have to um, look. Who, who manages our website, Jeremy? Is that, I don't know. I, yeah. It's but somebody. I just, <laughs> anyways, God was it. <laughs> so we have, we have books that we would really think encourage our people to read right. like some that, that Rick just mentioned there's literally hundreds of books that are written for these purposes uh, and, and of course you need to be careful you you, you yeah. can you can get in 
uh, how can I say it? You can get in trouble easily by reading some guys that are, are trying to sell a book or to make a name for themselves instead of glorify God in their mm-hmm. writing. Uh, that I think is counterproductive. So we we would encourage you to, before you just go to Amazon and and you know buy a book because it's got five stars and a bunch of liberal or atheistic people are you know checking the stars. Uh, talk to us about it if you're uncertain. But we have you know regularly given out books and lists of books to help people in this regard. And here's an open invitation. You know, there are these these people called elders and pastors that God has given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You know, and all doctrine is meant to help us live out faithfulness to Christ and actually be practical in our lives. And uh, we haven't been able to get into all that here, and we're out of time. But open invitation. Um, you know, if you're a woman, make an appointment during office hours and, and come and say, hey, I want to talk about how does God's sovereign will interact with my sin, or I just I need help understanding this, mm-hmm. or if you're a guy, I'd take you out to lunch or dinner or whatever the case. And we actually enjoy talking about this because these are important things, and you don't need to start from square one, and you definitely don't need to do this alone and actually shouldn't do it alone. Yeah. So yeah. we have lots of people who are equipped to help you understand these things more and apply them. Yeah. And we're never going to get to the point where we just have arrived and we understand all this stuff. This is why. Well, I think we'll get a, a pretty significant distance, especially when we see Jesus face to face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think at that point there's going to be ground to cover. Yeah. Throughout eternity, because He's an infinite God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that's going to be what eternity is about. Right. A big part of it is God continuing to reveal Himself to His people throughout eternity. Right. But I think the moment we see Jesus face to face, we'll have a lot of our unanswered questions yeah. answered. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then and you're going to be pretty close to that point this week when you finish school. Yeah, yeah hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> and and Rick's I think pretty much there when you know, he is called a master. He is of these things a double master. Yeah, by by no one ever. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, he, we should call him Master Rick from now on. What do he, you think? Well, he oh, already makes me do. Is that. this a good time to talk about my self-published book? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Well, church, next week we're going to be talking about the second person of the Trinity, and uh, we hope that you can join us. We love you, and we look forward to being with you next week on The Voice of the Valley. Have a great day.